OMG, it's the first official episode. Are you guys freaking out a little bit? Because I am totally freaking out a bit. I couldn't think of a better way to get started than to talk about trial four. I first watched this documentary when it came out on Netflix last year, and I knew that I wanted to discuss it on my very own podcast. I didn't see it talked about, at least not by any of my fave podcasters, so I knew that I definitely wanted to make it one of the first series that I talked about eventually episodic documentaries and i do have quite a few planned like john wayne gacy devil in disguise the sons of sam and so much more we'll move to patreon but this one to be honest was just too important to hold off on my name is sean ellis and i was wrongfully convicted of murder at 19. Now I'm facing my fourth trial and the possibility of going back to prison for life. The death of a police officer. It's not handled like other homicides, and this one wasn't. The sense we got was Mulligan's past had caught up with him. And when a black kid got arrested, it's like, where'd that come from? Here we go again. In my opinion, Sean Ellis executed John Mulligan. I was scared. I was confused. My son was in jail for murder. Yo, give us the keys. The first words out of Sean's mouth is, I was there that night. Across from that bridge, my cousin, I came out and went home. Down on my knees. Why would somebody put themselves in the middle of a homicide if they were involved? Yeah. The cops were just looking for someone to pin this murder on. Ellis was convicted by the work of corrupt police detectives. The corruption within the Boston Police Department is what drove this investigation. There's nothing that connects Sean to this crime. The Attorney General's office knows about it. The U.S. Attorney's office knows about it. There's no conspiracy. Sean Ellis did it. I mean, it's as simple as that. He did it. There is a cultural cover-up that has affected the Boston Police Department and police departments everywhere across the country. We just want a taste of freedom. It's a black man, white police officer. Of course it's race. Every day that, that someone stays locked up for a crime he didn't commit is a day that you shouldn't be able to sleep as a prosecutor. For my fourth trial, I want to be vindicated. I want to be exonerated. I definitely want the world to know that, that I'm innocent. This is bound to be one heck of a series there are eight episodes in this documentary and just due to the nature of them and all the information that gets presented i will be doing one episode per one episode of the documentary so for the next eight weeks we will be talking about trial four i hope that you are ready because it is going to be one amazing ride now let's get to it. This is the first episode of the documentary and it is called Chapter One, Execution Style Murder. It's not even two minutes in and the judge in Sean's motion for a new trial hearing is doing what most in the criminal justice system do. They try to pretend that certain situations are one-offs and that the person didn't get a fair 
trial, sure, but that the investigation and those involved in it were all on the up and up. Now, she may very well be a nice lady, but come on. Why is it so hard to just admit that a person got railroaded and that an investigation was corrupt? We'll get to this in a future episode, but it would really go a long way to improving the reputation of the system and those in it if they were just honest and worked to make wrongs right without making it seem like the person is guilty, but that the investigation got a little screwed up, therefore they can't prosecute it again. See Curtis Flowers, the West Memphis Three, and even the Central Park Five cases as examples of prosecutors and judges not saying that these people are innocent and were railroaded, but rather try to still make them out to be guilty, but that the case got so messed up that they can't prosecute it anymore. Now, she does strongly agree and she does stand by her decision that Sean didn't get a fair trial, but she's concerned that her ruling has reflected negatively in the eyes of the public of some very honest and honorable police officers who were involved in this case. She doesn't want her decision to in any way impugn their reputations. Now, spoiler alert, there are no good officers or investigators in this case, and they impugned their own reputations with what they did. I'm honestly shocked the cops who did appear agreed to be part of it because they suck too. As you heard in the trailer, they still are claiming that Sean is guilty. This man spent 21 years, seven months, and 29 days in jail for this crime and they can't even admit that the whole thing was a sham meant to cover up for a group of corrupt cops but let's go back to the the crime itself it's 1993 september the 26th at 3 49 a.m and a 911 call has come in about a cop on detail being found shot in his car Tony Lochi is a former reporter for the Boston Globe, and she tells us that she was alerted by the overnight editor that a call came in through the police scanner. And they knew that it was big because the cops radioed to change the channel to ones that others don't have access to. Now, she couldn't go back to work the next day without finding the scene, especially of a cop murder. So she headed out on American Legion Highway when she was stopped at a red light in a Crown Vic, which we know is a cop car, uh, zooms past her and it tells her, you know, she's on the right track. And so she follows it. There's like an old cop style type video of Dennis Pembroke from the state police department and he's headed to the Walgreens after checking out the scene he tells the camera crew that he's with that there was a report of an officer being shot he declines to identify him at the time he says that he was shot in the face that he was deceased and that there was an unconfirmed report that his firearm was stolen he also tells him that he knew him probably about as much as anybody else knew him. But to be exact, the officer is later identified as John Mulligan. He was shot five times in the face with one of those shots being up the nose and was on a paid detail at the time in front of the Walgreens. 
the Boston Police Commissioner William Bratton during a press conference describes it as a premeditated cold act. Now, stick a pin in this. Former head of homicide Edward McNeely says that it sounded like an execution to him, but that they wouldn't know until they know the facts because in homicide, they don't speculate. Did you just roll your eyes? Because I definitely did at that one. Now, Mulligan received a whopping 400 convictions from 500 arrests, some of which people are still in jail for to this day. An article was written about this record, and it stated that he had more arrests in 11 months than any officer on the force. I'm not suspicious of him and want those convictions looked at at all. No, 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 no. A Boston police officer even felt that if there was a list of the top 10 most likely cops to be killed, that Mulligan would be at the top of that list. When Detective Mulligan was murdered, um, I remember... The, the, the sort of the feeling in the city because there was a police officer who was killed. Um, everybody was rallying around the family. Everybody was rallying around the police department at the time. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, this is going to be a really tough case for whoever gets um, arrested um, because it's a, it's a cop killing. It's always very difficult. And, and I'm telling you, it seems to me that rules go out the window uh, when you're dealing with, with cop killing. The entire force is, is behind the Commonwealth's case. And so you're not just fighting the prosecutor and sometimes the judge. Uh, it, it's also the entire police force that, that will vilify you, will vilify your client. Uh, it's a tough case. It's always going to be a tough case. We see this huge procession and funeral from Mulligan that had citizens on the street watching and officers who never even met him there. It was so big. It looked like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. But you see men crying with the choir singing in the background and bells are ringing. It's even broadcast on the news. It was a big, dramatic thing. Tony is back and she says that while it was the huge funeral with cops from surrounding municipalities showing up, like any normal cop funeral, this one, though, was different because of the stories that they were hearing from sources inside the department about what kind of cop Mulligan was. What kind of cop was Mulligan, you might ask? Why a corrupt one? But let McNeely tell it, and he was great. While looking at what appears to be a scrapbook of this case with articles about John, he describes him as a free spirit, not afraid to arrest people with 500 arrests. I think we could have figured that one out for ourselves, but they did have to keep him aligned a bit. But outside of that, he was a hard worker. He would work 23 and a half hours a day and complain about the 30 minutes he had off. This is going to come to mean something in a future episode, so just wait and see on that one. We have William Dwyer, who is a former detective, who explains that John had a manila envelope, which would be his court bag. Why? I don't 
know, but it would be his court bag and that would be what he would put new evidence in, never taking old evidence out. This led to him being accused of using the same evidence in each case. Now, Dwyer is trying to convince us that this is not true, but come on, Pod, we know. Why else would you keep old evidence in the same space as new evidence? Now, Mulligan doesn't strike me as the guy who uses sticky notes, highlighters, colored tabs, a three ring binder with different tabs for each case. So truly, how do you know if you never take old evidence out that you're looking at evidence from this case in particular? Again, I don't want those 400 convictions re-looked at. But I digress. The day after the murder, the Boston PD launches a 65-man task force to investigate the murder. And you heard that right, 65 people. McNeely is telling us that his team was top-notch and consisted of well-seasoned guys who know how to secure the scene and look for evidence. Well, our girl Tony is here to say not so fast because in 1991, she wrote a series about them called Bungling the Basics, pretty much exposing them and the serious deficiencies that they had in solving crimes. They weren't securing scenes, they did no forensics collection, and they relied too heavily on eyewitnesses, which, to listen to enough criminal justice and true crime podcast, we know is heavily unreliable. The Boston Police Department of 1993 was not much different, maybe this much different, than the Boston Police Department that I wrote about in 1991. I doubted whether they could solve something if it happened right in front of them. Mike drop Tony. Okay. And when she says this much, imagine like the tiniest grain of sand. That's how much difference she says that the police department was between 1993 and 1991. It's later in the day of the 26th and they are videoing mulligan's car and the findings inside we see that the window is cracked a little bit and we also see shell casings on the passenger side of the vehicle so we see two casings up front kind of where your feet would be next to the door and we see one casing that's in that crevice between the front and back seats by the wall so pretty much if you opened the back and looked down, that's when you would see it, but otherwise you would miss it. Now, these are important details, so make sure to stick pins in these or write these down however you want to do it. They also find some matter on the passenger seat, which they say will be recovered. But look, Tony already told us you don't do forensics collection, so you ain't got a lot of us, Craig, okay? The department offers a $25,000 reward for information leading to an arrest after a few days of getting nowhere. And now they need information from people to solve cases. A reward like that is bound to get some false leads. 
but I guess we'll see. Now we hear a recording of a detective Richard Roth with a woman named Joanne Samuel. We don't get a date on this, so it could be the same day. It could be the day after, a few days after, who knows. But she says that she saw a white woman with brown hair in the front seat arguing with Mulligan the night that he was killed. Rosemary, who is Sean's attorney, says that the initial rumors actually said Mulligan was found with his pants around his ankles. And so that meant that early suspects were people who knew him as he wouldn't let a stranger into his car. This also led the detectives into the direction of Mary Shopoff, who was Mulligan's girlfriend. And she also matched the description of the woman seen in the car. Now, they were pretty much raring and revving up to pin this murder on Mary Shopoff. But how does Sean get involved? Well, on the 29th, three days after Mulligan's murder, Sean's female cousins, Tracy and Celine, were murdered. Sean was going over that night to their house because Celine had paged them. And when he got there, he saw that police cars were all in the parking lot. And then he saw police in the windows of Tracy's apartment. Now, as a young black man, he wasn't big on talking to cops. It's just not something that you do, especially in our community. There's such a deep rooted distrust of the police in our community. So you can understand why he wouldn't want to talk to them. And considering everything that would later come to be, I'm sure that that mistrust is validated by him it most certainly gets validated by me here but he ended up talking to people in the crowd and he's not sure if it was just a neighbor who was just outside or someone who worked for the ambulance who told him that both women were found deceased but they didn't know the relation between him and the ladies Detective John Brazel was at the scene that night and he spoke with David Murray, who is Sean's uncle. Now, Brazel wanted to know any contacts for any questions that he might have or developments in the case. So David gave him his number. Brazel called him the next day or about the day after that, and they agreed to meet on October 1st, where they had a recorded conversation about the double murders. Now, David describes Brazo as being like a tick on a dog to find out information. And he even tells him more information than David knew himself. At some point, he asks about Sean. He wants to talk to Sean and that he doesn't want to arrest him. He makes a point to say, I don't want to arrest him. I just want to talk. Now, there's a problem with that because Brazel already talked to and arrested Sean the day before. That's right. On September the 30th, Brazel came to Sean's mother's house with a warrant and arrested Sean. Brazel, who 
calls himself Brazil in his recording, but everyone calls him Brazil. So I'm going to also call him Brazil. He accused Sean of killing his cousins in a drug fueled rage. He says that Tracy wanted Sean out of her place and that he was a loser, which is why Sean did it. Now, it's 1993. I did a little Googling and I don't see any text message type phones. So I don't think, you know, she was texting with a friend. So how would he know any of this? Was there a journal? Did he open her diary? Is any of this true? I highly doubt it. But where is he getting these accusations from? So at some point, you know, Sean tells him, no, I love my cousins. I would never hurt them. So then Brazel shifts to the cop murder that happened at the Walgreens and asks Sean what he knows about it. Sean tells him, I don't know. I didn't kill the cop. He asked him why he was at the mall that night. And Sean tells him he was there to buy Pampers. Now, according to the transcript, Brazel says, we know and you know you were there. Which Sean already stated he was there to buy Pampers. So not really sure what kind of gotcha moment Brazel was going for. But when he already admitted it, it pretty much falls short. But, you know, he then goes into... I suppose you're going to try to tell me that you didn't use the phone next to the officer's car, which Sean again admits to making a call to a girl on that phone. The cops don't make any effort to get her name nor her address, according to the transcript. So obviously they weren't interested in verifying his story or anything that he said. Now they ask him to take them through the events. He tells them the same set of events over and over again. Tracy asked him to buy Pampers that Celine and Terry Patterson picked him up. He went in, bought the diapers and then left. Story never changes, making them matter and matter. They soon after accuse him of being involved in the murder. So then at some point he asked for a lawyer which they ignored violating his rights before he finally said, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm done talking. So Dwyer is hanging out outside in the corridor outside of his old office where Brazel is doing the interrogation and Brazel comes out, sees him and by chance in air quotes threw out the diaper thing and said how it tied Sean to the case and Dwyer saying they were on to the right guys. How Sway? Was Sean the only person that went into that Walgreens during the time of Mulligan shift? I don't think so. So him buying diapers in that store before 3 a.m. somehow tied him to a murder that happened around 3.40 a.m. simply because he was there to buy something. Anybody that bought items from that Walgreens that night should then also be tied to the murder. And we know that someone else was there later on in the day. So we can safely assume that more people were also there. Also, how the hell do we go from a white woman suspect to suddenly 
black male suspects. His lawyer is all of us. Like what guilty person would put themselves in the vicinity of a crime, especially a cop murder, if they're guilty? They feel like Sean is a psycho, so they feel like it is Sean. Now it's back to the first and Brazel is asking if David is aware that last night they arrested Sean, to which he says yes, making absolutely nothing that was said in the first portion of their damn recording make sense. First, it's, I just want to talk to Sean. I don't want to arrest him. And now it's, I arrested Sean. And during our conversation, he admitted to being present at the Walgreens on the night of Mulligan's murder. Again, anyone who went to that Walgreens that night would have been a suspect if that's all it took for them to look in your direction. At this point in time, do they even know what time Mulligan was murdered? Does it match up to the time that Sean was at the Walgreens? Also, what is the thing that you need called freaking motive? So Brazel tells David that Sean knew more information than he told him or the cops and that he was capable of shooting the Pope, but not his cousins. Now, that's quite a picture to paint of someone. You can shoot the most holiest person that is currently in the in on this planet, but you couldn't shoot your own cousins. Really? Now, they say not his cousins because Craig Hood, who is Celine's ex-boyfriend, apparently confessed to murdering the girls over the dispute over a gold chain. Quite the ridiculous thing to murder people over, but it appears that a few months ago, Craig created a change.org petition claiming that he was wrongfully convicted of killing a witness to the cop's murder. That's why I said apparently confessed because he's currently stating that he didn't actually do it. They just pinned it on him because he knew a witness to the crime. Now, it currently has 255 signatures of his requested 500. Sorry, it's a bit of a read, but if you're interested, definitely check it out. Now, I don't know nor want to sit here and try to proclaim his innocence, but I do firmly side-eye anything to do with this case, and I really don't put it past them. Now, on the 27th, a man by the name of Victor Brown makes a statement, and he says that a vehicle was parked outside his house, a brown VW Rabbit, with two black males inside and a passenger in the back seat of the passenger side. Now, he doesn't specify if there's a third person in the car or if one man is in the front and the other one is in the back. All he says is he just saw two black males. That's pretty much it. Now, after saying he saw two black males, they ask him if he could see their nationality, which... He literally just told you black, but I guess they weren't listening. So he then says, you know, 
He goes into his house and as he reaches the top of the stairs, the car starts and speeds off with the lights out. Now, my only issue with this is that Victor doesn't live exactly close to the Walgreens. I imagine that this hasn't really changed since the 90s, considering how many woods are there. But we get a flyover shot and there appears to be about like a New York block, maybe a little shorter because... I give New York blocks like a hard time, but they're probably not that. And this was probably not that long, but I'd probably say like a block or two, maybe a little bit more of woods in between the side of the Walgreens and then his house. Now, when they kind of go directly in front of Victor's house, there is a street that I can see behind the trees because you can't even see the lights from the strip mall showing how far it is especially when it's at night if it's close enough you should be able to see those lights now there is a street that appears to be right behind his house and when you look at the side of the road there is no on street that people can turn so again if you're going to commit a murder at the Walgreens his house really isn't that convenient for you to park your car and then run from the Walgreens over to your car you're gonna be spotted by someone and it's gonna look suspicious as hell especially at three o'clock in the morning but I don't know this is what they're saying so I will post a picture of the flyover shot so you can kind of see it um to kind of judge for yourself on like how much distance there is but they do find the car in question in a carport on friday october the 5th that car belongs to none other than terry patterson now terry patterson is the person who drove sean to the walgreens that night i don't know about you but this is kind of starting to feel like a little bit of a setup to frame it around Sean but who knows now he tells them that he was there that night at the Walgreens that Celine and Terry took him and now witness is describing Terry's car which wasn't even at the scene but okay So they bring in the car as well as arrest Terry and charge him with murder. Again, what is the motive here on what was earlier described as a premeditated cold act? We get no relation, no nothing between these people and Mulligan. In fact, the motive that they try to pass off to us makes no sense when you originally describe it as an execution and as a premeditated act. This is a crime of passion. Obviously, there's overkill here. Two random people who don't know this man is not really going to be your suspect. But again, let me not get too ahead of myself. And 
they just ignore the witness who came forward about the white woman who was arguing with Mulligan. And now suddenly two random black men are the murderers. I, I, does anybody else not like getting this? Is the square not circling here? Because it really just doesn't make sense. But like I said, Terry gets arrested and... He, you know, he was being questioned. He had nothing to do with it. He told them he had nothing to do with it. And then you have Brazel, who needs the investigation to stop. Brazel, who says in his report um, that when he asked um, Patterson about did Sean shoot um, Mulligan, He says Patterson shook his head um, in up and down version as if to say yes. Now his lawyer, Nancy Hurley, was sitting right next to him and never saw that. And so she at that point fires a letter back to Phyllis Broker, who was the prosecutor, and said, I was there. He never shook his head up and down because she knows it didn't happen. That's how easily it happens. It's one cop who says something that's completely wrong that immediately gets refuted by the lawyer that's there and everyone discounts the lawyer because she's a defense attorney and no one wants to believe that um, Brazel would say something on a, on a cop killing that wasn't true. And at the time that this whole thing happened, you have to remember, nobody had any, any reason to disbelieve Brazel. Uh, and then once he, he made that false claim that Patterson had implicated Sean. That was it. That was it. That was that was how they got off and running. And what a sad revelation that is. That the word of an attorney who was present wouldn't be taken seriously simply because you don't want to believe that a cop with a vested interest about about as much of a vested interest as the defense attorney for their client, probably even more of a vested interest, to be honest, in solving this case, especially for one of their own, wouldn't make up a story and wouldn't lie when it feels like they really have the motive to lie if they want to solve it and they want to close it as fast as possible. But that's how the episode ends. The episode ends with Terry getting arrested and with this supposed confession. And that and that's all. So the first episode is in the books, you guys. I hope that you enjoyed it. And next week we get a look at what the culture of the Boston PD was like. We get more into the arrest of Sean and Terry and get into a questionable witness. Thank you all so much for listening and I hope to see you in the next episode. Bye.